Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This is a true crime podcast, as the title suggests. So please consider this your warning that it's not suitable for children and it probably will contain content that may be triggering to some people. Also, it's an Australian true crime podcast, so Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners should be aware it may contain the voices of deceased people. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. Something inside me snapped. I got really cold really fast. I just looked at him and I said, Mate, I have been beaten up by you. I've been robbed by you. I am not going to be raped by you on top of it all.
This episode of Australian True Crime is, among other things, a very honest look at sex work. We've spoken to sex workers before, but never this explicitly. And when I say explicit, I don't mean sexy. I mean we're going to be talking about violence and sexual violence in a pretty graphic way. At times, it's even going to get gynaecological. So if that's something that you're not comfortable with, then this one might not be for you. Our guest today is Angie. She was a sex worker and drug user for some years, and she sustained a brain injury through an unsuccessful suicide attempt, which accounts for her struggle to think of words sometimes. As dire as all of that sounds, she's a very positive person and fantastic company, and this is not going to be the most depressing podcast you've ever heard, I promise you. Angie is one of a kind, as is her wife Luna, who sat beside her during this recording, and you may hear her chime in from time to time. I'm sure it sounds like I've already given you all of the highlights, if that's the word, of Angie's story, but I promise you I haven't. There's lots more to come. And we begin by hearing about Angie's early life. I grew up in an area where there was an awful lot of immigrants and with those immigrants came the belief that it was evil, yucky, bad. You say you you kind of knew that you were gay. Yeah. My best friend got found out when a diary was stolen by one of the guys and he read a bit and saw, saw what was written. He got beaten up every day after school badly for like a year. And I'm like... Because he was gay? Because he was gay. Right. And I was like, there's no way I'm going through what he's going through. Yeah. And also in your notes, you talk about the idea that you wanted family and you didn't see a pathway to that. Well, yeah. Like, you know, this was the early 90s and I didn't even consider the possibility that I could be with a woman and have a family. Like, it just didn't even occur to me. So you had a boyfriend in high school and you ran away with him? Yeah, we did. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, it was funny because we were using protection before we left, but I think the thrill of the adventure, we just, (laughs) like, we were like like bunnies and we just didn't even consider the repercussions of being bunnies. (laughs) And so you fell pregnant Mm -hmm. during the adventure. Yeah. And came home to mummy because uh, I was a couple of states away by that stage. But we should also mention that you had suffered sexual abuse um, at the hands of a number of offenders by the time you, you ran away with your boyfriend as well. Actually, that all happened before high school. It was like between the ages of five and 12. I'd be left in positions where I was alone with these people and they took advantage one happened at Confest that my dad took me to, at which I had a ball of a time. Actually, got to see my teacher naked. She, she, she was so mean to me before that. And when we got back to school, she was lovely. It was great. <laughs> really broke down those barriers. Oh yeah, but yeah, I did have like one thing happen to me out there. There was situations where, like my dad, he was a hornbag, and uh, he. Uh, I can only assume what he was doing with the woman in the house and us kids were made to go outside and play in the backyard till he called us. And the teenage boy um, 
like it was situations like that. Like I didn't know these people. Yeah. Okay. So basically, it's lack of supervision. Yeah. So I wonder how much of that was to do with you, the the big adventure of running away with your boyfriend as well. So you came home. Um, you had your baby. You got married to your boyfriend. He became your husband. And in fact, I mean, you wrote in your notes that it was the relationship became tumultuous and toxic with many breakups, but you were still very young. You would have been 18 when you got married. So you're still very young to be married and parents. And then you hadn't been diagnosed with anything by that stage, but. No, um, I I had been diagnosed with depression a few times. Okay. But you attempted to take your life for the first time pretty early. Yeah. I I think I was, I was almost 19. So I was still 18. I uh, I needed to get a job, so I went to Centrelink and they they got me an interview with Pizza Hut and they said, okay, well, you suit the job well, but in order to do it, you need to go on this two-week program. The job was open to youth at risk. I fell into that category as a teenage mum. So the two-week program, you went away and you did this eight-day trek over 275 kilometers, walking, bike riding, and kayaking. And then at the end of it, the eight days, you spent like five or six days at a retreat. And there they just inundated you with, you know, uh, you can do this. You are strong. You know, there was the breaking of the wood and, you know, like it was just constant from morning till night. This is for a job at Pizza Hut, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Jesus Christ. But the thing was, is when I came home, like I was built up so high. And then when I came home, I came back down to earth. I didn't know which end it was up. I, I had mental illnesses that I didn't know about. Mm. And uh, I ended up trying to take my life. And I wasn't the only one in that program that did that. There was like four of us. My God. Yeah. It was a inspiration place. And and they were marketing to Centrelink saying, we'll get these kids that are, you know, in trouble and we'll put them on the right path. But the, the way they, like, built us up and then with nothing afterwards, like, the come down was just insane. Nobody succeeded, but there were, like, a total of four or five out of the – 22 kids that tried to take their life within the first three months after the program. So you then went on to have another baby, though, within that marriage? Uh, Yeah, we actually, that was actually sneaky of me. I had actually left my husband and was, you know, living on my own with my son, and I wanted to give him a sibling I didn't really want to start a new relationship. I thought it would be kind of nice for them to share the same bloodline. So it was the only deceitful thing I'd have really done in my life that was really deceitful. And I got back together with him with the sole purpose of getting pregnant, which makes it sound like I left him because the job was done. But I I didn't, I swear. I left him because he put his hands on me while pregnant, and that was, for me, a no-go. I thought about how I could make enough money to establish myself in a home quickly. Two little kids? Well, uh, I was still pregnant, so I only had the one. 
And then you moved back in with your mum and it was pretty cramped. Mm-hmm. But you were working as a ma- massage therapist by that time. And that was, was that the first time that you ever considered becoming a sex worker? First thing I did was see my doctor and said, is this safe for me to do this? And he said, just think of it like a cork floating in a bottle. It's fine. I decided, well, look, I'm already used to working with naked people. I'm already good at judging what's making them feel good and what they're not enjoying. So I figured, like, I'd probably be good at this. And uh, I rang up the local brothel and off I went. And you had a really clear objective, didn't you? A clear goal. Yeah, I, w- I was going to work for six weeks. I would make as much money as I could in that six weeks, working three days a week. My goal was 3000 I think I got up to 27 something like that. Like I needed rent, bond, and second-hand furniture, actually. Yeah, to get you and your baby into the, an apartment or into some kind of place for the two of you and then wait for the new baby. Yeah. And you did it. Yeah. Maybe two or three months in, being a single mum and... My friends were all still at the age of nightclubbing and partying. So I wasn't getting much visitors like to keep me company. And so I, I never felt like I could just be myself. I was always mum. And so I decided that I'd do a couple of nights a week just to have some me time and, and socialisation, talk to other people be an adult. In the brothel. Yeah, well, a, a crazy resolution, I suppose, but that's what I did. I, I get that because I've worked in brothels too as a receptionist, but mm-hmm. um, the girls' room in a brothel is a really fun place. The girls' room, for listeners who don't know, is where the girls wait in between bookings and hang out, do their makeup, watch telly, chat, and I totally get it. The camaraderie in the girls' room, it's a a great social environment. If if you're working with girls you like, we should add. (laughs) It doesn't take one bitch to wreck it. But (laughs) I actually met my best friend who I've been lifelong friends in that first brothel. And I was, because I was not romantically attracted to men, it was very easy for me to separate, like, the sex from emotional connection. So it was, uh, would you say it was a, sort of positive working environment for you when it, when it was good? Yeah, yeah, it was great, very empowering. You know, I, I, I felt attractive. I was constantly being told how beautiful and how articulate and, and what a great conversationalist I was, and it was great for my morale and, and my ego. And it sounds like you, you booked. You, you got a lot of bookings. Well, yes, I was one of those girls that wouldn't snag the one-timers I was the girl that would snag the regulars and uh, I had a a huge regular base like, you know, they would make sure that I was there on Tuesday because they wanted to come and see me. Uh, They'd ring up in advance to ask if I'd be there. Oh, yeah, which is the smart way to be. Yeah. The girls who work on that and make sure that their service is good and that they, they treat it like a business so that they've got lots of regulars so that all year round they're busy, they're making their money, not just the busy times of year and all that. So you were one of those. Yeah. I found the job to be just about equal parts sexual relief and relaxation and counselling. I had so many clients coming in. 
oh, my wife's driving me crazy. You know, she's she's acting like this. I don't know what she wants. I, I've tried all these things. And I would talk them through and say, what is she saying mostly? Like trying to get them to, to open up and listen to what they're really upset about, not just the nitpicking that's making them crazy at the moment. And, yeah, I helped a lot of people, you know, like, if people think, you know, oh, prostitutes, you know, are going to wreck your marriage. Well, I think I saved a lot. <laughs> I really do. I believe you. I know yeah. thousands wouldn't, but I do understand what you're talking about. Absolutely. Yeah. Speaking of men who you counselled, tell us about the man who who was tearful and telling you about the fact that he had become a, a hitman. I started working in the city. And I had only been working in the city for a few months, but I noticed that the clientele was quite different. But whenever you hear stories from guys, you take it all with a grain of salt because they like to talk big. So he booked me for an hour and, um, you know, I, I did a massage for him. And, you know, then we got down to business. And after a while, he started talking and, and opening up and he, he was saying, oh, well, I'm down from Sydney and that's where I live and just basic chit-chat. And then all of a sudden, he, like, he starts crying and I'm like, what's wrong, what's wrong? And he's like, I don't know if I can do my job. Like I, I just started this new job and I don't know if I can do it. And then he starts sobbing and I'm thinking, really, is it that bad? And then he goes on to tell me how he had, gotten it in to learn how to become a hitman in Sydney and that they'd started uh, his job training with uh, hits on drug dealers and prostitutes whose debts had got too high and that he would offer them the drug of their choice. He would carry it all and it would all the, all be either laced or incredibly pure. So when the person would take their normal amount, they would think, okay, this is safe for me to use. But the actual strength of the stuff was so strong, it would just knock him out and it'd be dead within minutes and he'd walk away. And you counselled him, didn't you? Yeah. I, he ended up booking Comforted me. Comforted him. I, he booked me for a second hour and, like, we continued the conversation. I really didn't know what to make of it. I sort of came out of the booking bewildered thinking was that real or was that just more big talk I know what you mean though about violent men I mean because a lot of men do talk big and a lot of them want to make you believe that they're gangsters and mobsters and this and that but then every now and then you will realize that you are in the company of someone who is the real deal who is violent you know and that you're in danger yeah now, what's your experience? I only ever had one experience on reception when a girl was attacked by a client and it was shocking in that he was the preppiest looking dude. He was a young guy, as clean cut as you could possibly imagine. No dramas at all uh, downstairs. She was really happy to get the booking because he was she was young and cute and he was young and cute and they'd sort of had a laugh together in the intro and it was a really quiet night, I remember, too. It was like a Sunday night. It was deathly quiet. She was happy to have a booking at all. And they went upstairs together. And I don't know, 15, 20 minutes later, 
we could hear her sobbing, sort of wailing coming down the stairs and he'd really been very violent with her. He'd torn her hairpiece out and chunks of her own hair with it. And as soon as she got back into the room with him, he had, was just a different guy. She said his, his face was different, his eyes were different and he'd really thrown her around and roughed her up. And we called the police immediately. And the weird thing for me was that he didn't leave. Like he had probably four or five minutes where he could have bolted, but he didn't. He was still sitting up there in the room when the police came. And we realized and the police said, he's a weirdo. He's a wacko. So what's your experience then with, so you're there with one guy who's telling you I'm a hitman, and he's actually sobbing in your arms for two hours. But what's your experience with men who were violent, who you did get a bad feeling about? The first time I was badly hurt, we was at that exact same brothel as the first guy we talked about. And, um, okay, so this is a little bit embarrassing, but I can actually take an entire fist. Uh, my husband tore me after childbirth, and um, I've been quite accommodating ever since. So in the brothel, was that something you would charge extra for? Was that a fantasy that Absolutely. Yeah. That was an extra they'd have to pay like a hundred bucks just to get a look in on top of their normal fee. But this one guy that I offered it to said, Yeah, that sounds great. I don't know what he was thinking, but there was no warm-up. Um, normally, you know, that's something you've got to warm up to. He just went boom, straight for it. And I felt like something tear inside and um, I was in so much pain. I entered the booking and I went down to the receptionist and said, look, I, I have to go home. I'm, I'm in real pain. I didn't tell her what had happened. I just said I had to go. She said, fine. So I got a cab home and I went to the toilet when I got home and something felt wrong and I reached out and I could feel my cervix sitting outside of my vagina. Oh, my God. Like yeah. Yeah. And you know what the craziest thing was? It didn't even occur to me to go to hospital. Even then? Didn't even enter my mind. I just went to bed. I stayed in bed for a few days, and I was constantly, like, pulling up. And then I had a dildo at home, and I actually would insert it further and further in each day to try and train it to go back. <sighs> Yeah, I, like by the second week, I was lying in bed with it inside all the time to get it to stay put. And yeah, it worked. You're the Bush Tucker man of <laughs> cervixes. What have doctors said since then? I mean, surely can they tell? I've never talked about it with a doctor and they've never said that something seemed amiss. And I've actually got excellent control as far as like expanding and contracting the vaginal walls. Still to this day, mm -hmm. Angie, I've heard a lot of stories in my time, but that one is up there. The worst thing that I've read in your notes, though, being a, an old receptionist, is that you were sexually assaulted in brothels and the way that it was handled was, was disgusting. appalling. It was disgusting. I shouldn't say sexually assaulted. I'm, I'm, I'm sanitising it. You were raped. Yeah. So... Um, I was working at this little place in Brunswick. Uh, it was a smaller brothel. And these three guys came in, mid-twenties. One was built like a rugby player, and he's the one that chose me. 
and I was actually in the room closest to the reception desk and there is a buzzer by the bed that you can press if you're in trouble. If you can get to it. Yeah, if you can get to it. He got on top and he just let his entire weight fall on me without holding himself up at all. The only part of him that was moving was this crutch and my mouth and face was like buried into his shoulder and I couldn't breathe. And even if my mouth was free to breathe, the sheer weight of him on me and the brothel owner destroyed all evidence that they were there. While I was in a ball trying to catch my breath and freaking out, she found out and her answer was to lock the doors, took me to the back room with all the other girls. She took all our phones off us. She destroyed the credit card receipt and the videotape from that night. Everything police could have used to track them down easily. And she wouldn't let any of us girls go until the end of the shift at like three in the morning. I didn't do another job that night. I refused to even entertain anybody out there. What was his reaction when he was finished? Sure, I mean, you would have been fighting. He had to have known you couldn't breathe. When a human being can't breathe, they'll fight with every bit Mm -hmm. of strength they have. Mm -hmm. What was his reaction? Uh, There wasn't any. The way he was reacting, he could have been doing it with a blow-up doll, you know, and... I don't think it would have looked or seemed any different. And the brothel owner destroyed all the evidence that they were there, basically. Mm -hmm. And she wouldn't even let us leave early, so we couldn't report it. So it's turned from, oh, you know, this is kind of easy because I'm gay and I'm not really, you know, and it's social and it's me time. This has turned into an environment where... You're realising it's it's dangerous. You're not that well protected necessarily. Fairly quickly, I would imagine. Your your kids are still pretty young, aren't they, by the time you mentioned to your ex that this is where you're working? Yeah. um, I was suffering after my second baby was born and I was suffering from a very, very, very deep depression. And I did not believe that I was the best choice for my children. I didn't think I was doing a good job at all. And so I asked my ex if he would take them for three months while I got some proper mental health in place and care. And uh, so I I told him that I was working in a brothel. He assumed that that meant I was doing drugs, which I wasn't. Yeah, as people do assume. Yeah. Yep. And uh, when the three months was up, he said, I'm not giving them back to you. And he said, No judge in the land would give a woman like you these children. So don't even bother trying. And I believed him. I mean, firstly, you know that postnatal depression is very, very common in women who've already had depression. Yeah. Also, yeah, that's a really common thing for partners and families to say to sex workers. Yeah. Like, you know, you, you must have absolutely no moral compass to do that kind of job. And it's just not true. No, no. In fact, the vast majority of women I worked with were single mums because how else are you making that kind of money and then also having that much time to spend with your children? Yeah. 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 You could like just work three nights a week in a babysitter for, you know, like the six hours that you need and, you know, you can live very comfortably. Mm, and, and be with them all the time. Mm. 
So after that, you say you spiralled really deeply and really quickly because you believed him. You believed that you'd lost your kids. So then you, you stopped even making money. Tell us about that, the psychology of how a girl makes money and how that can change. Like we, we discussed the fact that you were really good at making money in the brothel because of all the reasons, because you treated people well, you treated clients well, so they came back to see you. Um, and obviously you looked great because they were kept telling you you looked great and you're a young woman. But you've mentioned in your notes that that changed. Tell us about that. The thing is when you're working in a brothel, if you are strung out on drugs, it's pretty obvious. If you are in a good mood and you feel on top of the world, people are drawn to you and they're going to want to book you. You know, you're bubbly, you're you're enjoyable to be around. But if you're in a depression, nobody wants to know you and you only get the bottom of the barrel bookings. The people who want to try to exploit, you know, the, it's like they got radar and they go, oh, this person like might let me get away with stuff. So you went from living in that apartment that you'd worked so hard for with your kids to having to move out of that. You lost your home and you ended up sleeping in share accommodation and then moving around from place to place and even on the street. Yeah, well, when I first moved into the city, I was in share accommodation. I rented a room. And, uh, yeah, from there, it was pretty much, as you said, like just hopping from place to place. There was a time that it was an abandoned house on Carlisle Street and it had an enclosed porch that you couldn't see below the waist if you're standing from the roadside. So I made like a little nest of a bed behind the fence. And um, I stayed there. I, I lived under a bridge for a while. I lived in a squat in the sea, an old Westpac building that had been closed down. I lived in a, a building site where the property developers had lost the permits or something. It was an international thing. And so it like built... It was halted, but it still had running water and electricity. So I stayed there, oh, geez, for a good 14 months, I think. I I left the brothel situation before I ended up on the street. Okay, so this is when you're working on the street as well. Yeah. Why leave brothels and, and move to the street? I'd gotten hurt too many times, and there was so many instances where I was put in jeopardy and the receptionist or manager's uh, answer to that was, we can't make this a thing. So you're going to be quiet and we're going to make this go away. And I thought to myself, well, why am I giving more than half of the total to these people for my security when there isn't any? I'd rather just keep it all for myself and take my chances out there. And also you fell in love, right? So you're starting to to have your first relationships with women through the brothels. Is that right? I, I had like a little six-week thing early in my brothel life, but I, I met someone who I was with for four years off and on, again, very toxic. We're, we're both using and very dysfunctional relationship. But, yeah, like 
funny, I actually didn't use before I met her. I'd never used drugs. And about five months into our relationship, I knocked off work and I went to her house to find her smashed on the couch. And after working in brothels for all those years, I knew exactly what I was looking at. And my heart sunk and I thought, oh, my God, what do I do now? I'm actually in love with this person. And um, she said, like, it was just a, an occasional thing that she did and that really wasn't a big deal. And I thought, well, okay, I'm not going to judge. And um, when my depression got insanely bad, like the despair was beyond real, I said to her, look, I can't take this feeling anymore. Would you help me get on? And she said no at first. And I said, well, look, you know, you know who I have access to. I, I get any of my workmates to help me out with this, but I'd rather do it with you. And so she ended up saying, okay. It is sort of a taboo for heroin users to help somebody else use for the first time. A lot of heroin users don't care about that taboo, mm-hmm. but others do take it quite seriously. Yeah, and um, because when you're using heroin, you might look like you have no idea which end is up, but you're actually quite clear in your mind. It's just your body's gone into this like compulsory meditative state. <laughs> you can't get out of, but your mind is clear. But the beautiful thing is, is your emotions just go, huh. And so all of a sudden, like, you can make sense of things that your emotions were not allowing you to. And, like, the whole experience was just breathtaking. And, and like, they, they call it chasing the dragon because, you know, you're always trying to get that feeling that you got that first time. And like, it's such a beautiful analogy because it really is. You tr- Every time after that, you were chasing that first feeling. Instantly, I felt at peace and calm, and I became my creative self again. I started sketching, and 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 I was singing all the time, and you know, the world was was mine again. Mm. But it doesn't. I mean, inevitably, it no, doesn't it doesn't last. last, and it's expensive. You have to make the money to get it all the time, and in order to get it, you have to hang out with some really bad people, mm-hmm. and there's all of the all of the negatives coming to play really quickly, don't they? Yeah, and after my first hit, that was it for me every day. But then it became a matter of because she wasn't prepared to put herself in a position of working that I was supporting both of us and I felt like frustrated because like I would say to her look I need to have that first one so I'm healthy enough to be able to do my job and I'd get the pushback of how could you do that to me why would you leave me to feel sick for longer than I have to and I'm like, well, I can only get that little bit first unless I had a big job straight up. And uh, it's not enough to, like, stop the regurgitating and the and the tummy aches. And so there was a, a lot of, sorry, words leave my head sometimes. No, me too, mate, and I don't have an excuse for it. <laughs> No, but I know there's a there's a lot of angst in relationships when there's drugs involved, isn't there? There's so much, well, drama. It becomes an, an 
atmosphere, yeah. Yeah, fighting, the squabbling all the time about like, yeah, everyone's both people are hanging and you got to get it. And I actually figured it. I figured out the numbers in one year. I averaged out the amount of jobs I would often get in its course of a year of a week, and how much of that I would use on heroin. And I figured out in that one year I spent three hundred thirty thousand dollars on heroin for just the two of us. So your partner's job was supposed to be spotting for you, right? Right, on the street. right. She was supposed to stay in the shadows, take note of the make, model, and number plates of the cars. She had a little book that she would write it in, supposedly. But, you know, she'd go get bored, get cold, go walk about. Apparently, I found out later, doing other girls. Yeah. Because, <laughs> I mean, she's supposed to be your safety mechanism. If, if we accept that, okay, I don't feel safe in brothels, let's work the street, and okay, no worries, I will be your spotter, I'll sit there, I'll time you. If you're not back in time, I'll raise the alarm and I'll know what car you got into. Mm-hmm. And then you find out she's not doing that and she's off doing other girls. Yeah. Oh, God, babe, that's horrible. Yeah, so I uh, I don't believe it was like a nightly thing that she was with other women, but... But she wasn't spotting properly. No. I mean, let's not forget to put that into context. We've spoken before about the man who murdered Jill Ma was raping and terrorising sex workers in St Kilda every chance he got whenever he was out of jail before he murdered Jill Ma. Um, so that's the kinds of men we're looking out for. That's the reason we need spotters. And I'm usually really good at picking up on the vibes of people. Like I'm, I'm, I've got a very developed sense of empathy and I can usually gauge where someone is at emotionally. But a combination of the true psychopaths, impossible to read, coupled with the fact that I was sick and ignoring those feelings that I was having for the sake of the money, I would get hurt. If you'd like to talk to someone about abuse that's taken place in your life, no matter how long ago it happened, your GP is always a good place to start. If that's not going to work for you, you can contact 1800RESPECT on 1800 737 732 or via their website 1800respect.org.au or you can call Lifeline's 24-hour phone counselling service on 13 11 14. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com ACAST. 
That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. You've said that it's hard for you to remember really a lot of that time for various reasons because of the drug use, but also, yeah, I would say your brain's probably trying to protect you from a lot of it. Yeah, the big ones are burned in my memory, but there was lots of times where I was swindled, I was robbed, I was actually raped, or they would use me like a rag doll, and I get those memories in bits. For example, um, we were talking before about how differently men can present themselves and how oftentimes it's not the scariest-looking ones at the outset who turn out to be terrifying. The one that almost killed me and very, very nearly blinded me, he was driving a very expensive car. He had very expensive clothes and cologne on. He spoke with a posh accent, like he'd been to private school all his life and then worked in corporate. And so I felt very comfortable that he wanted to go to a place different from my normal place to go. So did he pick you up? Are we talking like Grey Street, St Kilda? Oh, no, no, I never worked Grey. I, I worked Carlisle uh, and uh, Greaves. And Inkerman. Inkerman was the main one that I worked at at the end. And he actually picked me up from Inkerman. And uh, my ex, she caused a ruckus and, and a, an argument because I, I said to her, look, I'm going to tough it out tonight. I'm going to just keep as much money so we can get a more valuable deal, more for our money, and we'll just tough it out the hanging until I've, I've made it. And she was not happy with that. She wanted to use it as soon as I got some money. And so she walked off and did her own thing. So we never got the make, model, and number plate of this car. But like I said, he was very suave. And so I, I thought, this is going to be great. And, you know, he'll breed on uh, $150 for the hour. So ordinarily, when a, a man picks you up, what happens in the movies, you know, the girl walks over to the car and oftentimes on TV she just kind of jumps straight in. But what really happens? Do you ne- you negotiate in the window? Yeah. What's the what that conversation like? You know, there's no looking for a date. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. That's, that's the one you see in the movies all the time. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, no. Uh, you know, it's just usually, hey, how you doing? What are you looking for? And uh, they might say, oh, I just want head job or I just want oral and it's like okay well that's usually going to be about 20 minutes and you know I'll give you a cheaper fee but if they say you know I want to do the lot that's going to be more like an hour so that's a different fee if they say I want to take you back to my place for a few hours then you might say okay well I'll give you three hours for this much which will be less than the hours individually but a lot more than 
you know. Yeah, right. So, and then if he's happy to do it in the car, to use his car, do you nominate the place? Do you say, well, I've got a place that I take my clients? Generally, yes. And it didn't always happen that if they chose to play, something went bad. But it was more often that they would do those bad things in their place of comfort. I was stupid and that didn't jerry with me till I'd left the street. And I, hang on, why didn't I say that earlier? Because this guy, the the posh guy this night, he said, no, 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 I've got a place, right? Yeah. And do you know where he took me? A church car park. Wow. Uh, seriously, a church car park. Weird. I knew it was there, of course, but like it never even occurred to me to, like, I'm not Christian, but it just felt really wrong. Yeah. But he'd obviously scoped it out yeah. previously and thought that's the spot. Yeah, I think because he knew that there was no cameras there. Where I would go, there was obviously no cameras, but there was a number of cameras on that intersection right near it, and there was a couple on the way that I knew about. And so I thought that would be a good place to go because I could point to if something really bad happened that I could say to the cops, check out these cameras. I'm sure we'll be on them. I did try to be smart about it, but... Yeah, you were smart. I, I tried, but, you know. So we get to the car park, and the first thing he does is he locks, central locks the doors, and this was when they had first come in, and I was really uncomfortable. I said, I'm really not happy to do anything with the doors locked. Can you open them, please? And he said, no, but you can give me your wallet. I had made money before that and I was saving it up and this was going to be my last job that I needed before I could get that bulk amount. So I had money in my wallet. So I didn't want to give it to him. And so I I said, no, no, I'm not giving you more wallet. So he pulls out a crowbar from beside the driver's seat and uh, threatens me with it. I'm thinking, he can't swing that thing around in, in, in the car. This is all for show. And uh, he, he like he kept repeating it, and I said, "No, bother you, no." And then all of a sudden, he just starts flucking me with as much swing as he could in that confined space. He split open my forehead to the bone. He split open my nose to the bone uh, with the square part of the crowbar. So it was like he didn't hit my eye. I'd have been blinded in the eye, and. That's why I thought, shit, well, I better do what he says. He must have covered himself and the interior of the car in your blood. Mm -hmm. What a psychopath. Blood was flying everywhere. Yeah. And I had this huge bag. Like, if you imagine, like, the old granny handbags are made of linen. It was one of those. I couldn't see anything for all the blood in my eyes. So I'm, like, doing finding my wallet by Braille amongst all the, the condoms and the lubes and you know, everything else that I kept in this bag and I wasn't getting it fast enough. So he just starts like flacking me on the back of my head. And most of the flacks just ended up in uh, like eggs, but there was a couple of times in the back of my head that it was split open that needed stitches. And when I finally got it, I gave it to him. He just threw it in the back seat and said, right, now take off your pants. And something inside me snapped, and I, I got 
really cold, really fast. I just looked at him and I said, mate, I have been beaten up by you. I've been robbed by you. I am not going to be raped by you on top of it all. And he's like looking at me as if to say, yeah, go on, tough girl. And and I, I went on and I said, look, I'm a mother of two. I'm the oldest of nine. I have multiple parents. I will be missed. They will look for you. If you want to fuck a corpse, go ahead, because I cannot be knocked out. I've never been able to be knocked out. So you will have to kill me. And if you want to go to jail, I have a, a bit of necrophilia. That's what you're going to have to do. And he didn't say a word. He unlocked the door. He reached over me and opened the door. And somehow jangled his leg off the side and literally kicked me out. As he was driving away, he threw my bag out. I tried so hard to see the number plate. There was so much blood in my eyes and my vision was so blurry. I couldn't even make it one letter. And, uh, yeah, I ended up walking down Princess Highway, just went cut intersects with St. Kilda Road, trying to pull someone over. But here I am in a miniskirt, blood all over me. Nobody was going to stop for that mess. Eventually a taxi did, and uh, I went to where I was living and then went from there to the hospital. But, yeah, he was a true psychopath. He never once raised his voice. I never got the once a menacing feeling from him. How he did that with such little emotion, it was frightening. And then I think you frightened him back when you spoke to him with no emotion. Yeah. And like, he met his match. When, when I said all that, his eyes went really wide, like, oh, fuck, she's serious. It was about two weeks later that I, I, I survived with and my regulars supported me during that two weeks. I mean, that's something to say about regulars too that I think is significant is that sometimes real friendships develop. Oh, absolutely. The, the way I ended up getting off the street was with the assistance of my two best regulars and two best friends at the time. Yeah. So you managed to survive for a couple of weeks, but you did have to get back to work as quickly as possible. So it's not like you were able to just be completely healed or whatever, right? Yeah. You still had your habit and... I pretty much went back to work as soon as they took the stitches out. Do you find that the other clients, is that a bit of a, a sort of a red rag to a bull too though? Do men sometimes think that they can be rough with you if you're looking like that on the street? Does that attract a bad kind of client? Yeah, it does. It really does. Even on the street, you have two very different types of clients. There's the men that see you as a person doing a service and there's the man who thinks he's bought you and he can do with you what he wants. Yeah, and you get the the worst kind when you look as though someone else has already, you know, taken advantage of you, treated you badly? I think so, yeah. Like the, the more disheveled you look, that's why I... I consciously chose not to pick up the street accent. What's the street accent? Oh, mate, look, you got to send the motherfucking awesome. <laughs> that real ucker. <laughs> 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 
uh, you know, every other word's a swear word. My every other word was sweetheart, darling, big mate. I, I was like absolutely fabulous all over. Oh, yeah, I was just thinking, I think I've got the street accent. No, 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 you don't. <laughs> <laughs> but now tell us about, yeah, the, the client who you met again just a few weeks after this attack because it, it makes me think, God, you know, when a situation's gone bad, it really goes bad, doesn't it? When when something's over, it's over. That's my experience. It turns to shit. It really turns to shit. It's the universe telling you, get out. Yeah. So um, I wasn't getting many people even stopping to talk to me, let alone booking me because I had these fresh scars, healing scars all over my face. And uh, I probably would have looked bad anyway because I was so strung out and and hanging from a lack of a heroin in my vein. But this guy pulls up in a taxi and um, he calls me over and he says, what's your name? And I can't remember the name I was using at the time. You know, he said, oh, would you be willing to come to my hotel? And I said, sure, like long as it's an hour or more. I'll go into the scene to the hotel. And she said, sure. You're like, oh, so I'll probably spend two or three hours. No problem. I said, okay. And I knew my girlfriend at the time was at home hanging. We were staying in a boarding house. And um, I said, oh, I'll tell you what, I'll do a double with you for free, long as we can use as soon as I get the money. I'll look after you. And he says, oh, yeah, that's a good deal. He said, I've got all the major stuff. You know, I've got a bit of everything. And so we drove around to the boarding house and I got her to come out and meet him. And she was very dikey looking, you know, like right up my alley, but obviously not his because <laughs> <laughs> he took one look and said, ah, no, no, I'll just take you. It's all right. <laughs> So off we go down St Kilda Road and I'm looking at him from the back seat. He's sitting in the front with the driver. I'm thinking, geez, this guy looks really familiar and I can't place him. And uh, I I said, oh, and you said, where are you from? He said, oh, I'm based in Sydney. I'm just down here on business. I thought, okay, now this sounds really familiar. And I'm like, oh, yeah, what do you do for work? He goes, oh, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. I've heard this before because that's what he said the first time, like wanted to ask that question. I can't remember what it was that he said. I, all of a sudden, like we were probably maybe 5K out from the seat. All of a sudden it clicked where I knew this guy from and, and like it all came rushing back and I said to the taxi driver, can you please stop the car, mate? And this guy gets out his wallet and goes like this, in full view of me, I think making sure I saw it, a $100 bill and said, don't stop for any reason. He hands the taxi driver a hundred bucks and says, don't stop. After you've just said, can you stop? Did he stop? No, no, he didn't. Oh. So you realise that this is the guy who told you that he's a hitman who, earlier, who kills... Was offering me yeah. the exact thing that he said he did. He sometimes kills sex workers who owe too much drug money and he gives them hot shots, basically. He gives them drugs. 
either that are too pure or that are laced with something else and he kills them and makes it look like, look like drug overdoses yeah. in hotel rooms. And I did not owe money to anyone. So the only conclusion that I came to was that he was just tying up a loose end. For, for who, though? Well, I, I, um, like... I knew his secret and he didn't know how good my memory was. Hmm. That's the only conclusion I've ever been able to make. Mm. Traffic lights were not on my side. Thank goodness the actual traffic was. So the cabbie wasn't able to go full speed because of the banker. When I th- we're probably doing 35K or maybe 40, I thought, if I don't get out of this, I'm in trouble. I'm going to die. So I've opened the door and I literally just jumped out and hoped that somebody behind didn't just run me over. And I've rolled and it, it really hurt. And then uh, it was scary. And I've run to the other side of the road. Once I got to the other side of the road, I hear this screech. And I've looked back and here's the cab that I've just jumped out of doing this crazy U-turn at the lights and coming after me. There's always cabs everywhere. So I've just jumped in one and I said, take me to the cop shop. Instant killer, but now. And uh, this cab followed behind us. I kept looking behind us. And he followed all the way until we got to the corner of the St. Kilda cop shop. And then I think he saw the sign and they backed away. I talked to the person on reception and they sent out somebody to talk to me, a, a woman, a cop, and we just talked on a little bench inside the cop shop and as I was explaining to her like the story of like how I knew that this guy was trying to hurt me and then I got to the part of how like I jumped out of the car and rolled and just hoped I wasn't going to get run over like she had her eyes were welling up with tears and it was monumental for me that somebody cared like somebody was hearing my story and actually cared that I was in trouble. Because when I'd been beaten up, the hospital had called the cops and they came down and took my statements and, and they were really good. Like, you know, they sent me to get a sketch done and I had to look through all these photos. Okay, of the posh guy the weeks before. Yeah, but like yeah. I, I, I never got that feeling like that this was a priority or that it's had any effect on them that was just another day at the office. And and that's fine because it is for them. But the fact that this police woman was tearing up at my story, like they were welling up in her eyes. Like it was like, oh my God, she she cares about what I'm saying. She believes me. And I was terrified after that because I knew he would know that I wouldn't be silly enough to fall for this one again. So I was terrified of a drive-by, that he'd just shoot me. Absolutely. Because, it, cause, I mean, you're already working on the streets, so where else can you go? Yeah. So it was only a couple of weeks after that that you made the second attempt on your own life. Yeah, my my then partner took uh, heart medication to lower blood pressure she had a disorder where her hands shook badly and she kept pain. And um, we were fighting. I can't remember the exact words or, or 
phrases, but I know we were fighting about the fact that I wasn't bringing any income in. I just snapped, I think, and I, I grabbed her tablets and I ran into the bathroom and I took them all. And uh, there was like 80 left. Wow. That's enough to stop your heart, which is what they did. Yeah. The Alfred, wow, they are amazing. The fact that they saved my life under those conditions. I was packed in ice. They were inducing, they were inducing hypothermia to lower my metabolism. So because they're very fast acting, these tablets they absorb very quickly. But at the same time, I was hooked up to adrenaline to keep my heart pumping. So they were doing this delicate balance. And meanwhile, I'm in a coma. I actually have clear memory of dying. And um, it was like I was writing a letter. And all of a sudden, I couldn't support my weight anymore. And I remember falling, like I was sitting on the floor. But I remember like actually slumping down. But it was like I kept falling, like through the floor, like into a void. This is in the bathroom. No, no, this was in a, my my bedroom. I took okay, I took okay. the tablets in the bathroom, ran into the bedroom, and locked the door. Right. Okay. Yeah. So this is through the process of the pills taking hold. You're writing a letter, and then you're falling, falling, falling. Yeah, and I just fell into this void, and I was like, I was aware of myself, but I was aware that I wasn't there and then nothing i was in a 12-hour coma and when i woke up i kind of freaked out a bit so they induced me into back into a coma for another 12 hours and then when i came out of it i was calmer and uh yeah it was it was a strange feeling but you do say you had suffered brain damage during the entire ordeal yeah well i was dead for a total of 12 minutes wow that's a long time, right? Uh, I died for four minutes and they brought me back. I can't remember the order, but there's a six-minute block, a two-minute block, and a four-minute block. So when I actually came out of the coma, I was asking the same questions minutes apart. Like I had the memory of literally a goldfish. You didn't remember your kids? I didn't remember that I had children. I remember that. I knew things from my immediate past, but like a lot of my long-term memory was gone. When I was in my recovery period from that, I used to describe it to people as like, like if you imagine a city and the buildings represent your memories, like all my buildings are quite fine, but the roads between them, I just torn up by this earthquake that you cannot get through. So like if if someone helps repair that road, it's like, oh yes, I remember that. And it all comes floating back because that memory is there. But I just can't access it without help. After that, my mental illnesses were diagnosed, borderline and bipolar, and I was put on antipsychotics. And it was like a miracle. It was like I'd been looking through frosted glass all my life and all of a sudden they were taken off and I could see clearly. I could understand why people were reacting the way they were. Even though I had a good grasp on empathy, I could understand why people were feeling the way they were. 
I couldn't relate it back to myself. So I couldn't see how I was causing these feelings in, in other people. But all that like became clear. And also my own emotional reactions made a lot more sense. And they weren't as intense. When you were talking about the way you were acting with your husband at the time and just the decisions you were making about your family and like, I want to have another a sibling for my baby, so I'll just get back with him. And and you were sort of being a bit hard on yourself. And I was thinking to myself, no, but you know, you had bipolar and you had like I think these are all just functions of that that you didn't know at the time and he didn't know. And I don't I don't think there's any point in being hard on yourself about those decisions because I'm sure, well, I know they made sense to you at the time. They were perfectly logical. Do you know, would you make those decisions now? Probably not. No, I mean, yes. Yeah. And the other thing is remembering how young you were, like all of this happened in a pretty compact period of time because then I read, I met my now wife at 30. Yeah. Like all of this happened before you were 30. Yeah. That's unbelievable. When you go through things like this, you expect that if you're going to experience any PTSD symptoms, like it would be like as soon as you left that situation, but it's not. When you first leave that situation, you uh, you feel free and 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 you and you feel like okay, I'm safe now, and it's a big exhale. I left the street and being a working girl at 28, I didn't start to have severe PTSD symptoms till about 34. Actually, one of the things I saw on the street. It was in the middle of the night, very, very quiet. I saw this car scream down the road. I have no idea how fast. It was really fast. And it smashed into the lights. And as I was crossing the road to see if it was all right, the car exploded in my face. So the first PTSD symptoms, I was actually able to hold a grasp on that this is not normal, was I was terrified to get in the car because I was scared it was going to explode. And every time car turned on, like it would come back to me in a flash and I could feel the heat on my face. I could see the flames. I I, I just stopped going places in the car, like unless it was... You still had to let your driver's license. I still don't have my driver's license. I'm 47. I was referred to a psychologist that um, specialised in trauma and PTSD. And uh, I worked with her for a bit over a year. It helped so much. And now, you know, I can go out for a walk. I can I can go out and be with people. You know, I went on a holiday with my family a few years back. And, you know, like they were saying, why don't you go and do this or go, go out and do that? I'm like, no, I'm just staying in my cabin. Yeah, I didn't want to go anywhere. I didn't want to see people. But I think you could have benefited more from more treatment. But the problem with the mental health system in Australia is so expensive. If they just put more money into letting people, making all those services free. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you get your 10 free visits for the year and then you're sort of just making headway. Yeah, yeah. And even with that, she still had to pay on top of it. Plus to see a psychiatrist, it's over $200 just for the session. That's for the first session. After that, it's only about 100 But, but you still got to come up with the, the money to pay that 200 But if you're, if you're just on Centrelink, it's, it's, it's impossible. impossible to get the care you need. Yeah. Yeah, and a lot of people with PTSD are on Centrelink benefits because they can't work. And the other thing that drives me crazy is that 
Like, in most ways, I look at America and I just sit there shaking my head. But the one thing they have got right is if you are suffering from mental illness, you can go to your local psych hospital and say, I need help. Can you take me for 72 hours for a break and maybe some diagnosis? And they will take you in and they will help you and and, and they'll honour that. Here, you have to be an immediate danger to yourself and others and they have to really believe it before they will take you into the psych ward to get real help. Tell us, though, I'm fascinated by your views on drug treatment. You've got very well-researched and obviously well-informed views when it comes to drug treatment. I think looking at it from a criminal element is really just perpetuating the problem. If you, obviously, I'm not saying don't lock up the dealers, but from a user standpoint, it's not just the criminal system, it's the community at large. They see drug users as evil, bad people, and and, and they're just criminals. I really strongly feel that it's a health issue. Nobody wakes up one morning and thinks, I'm going to take some hard drugs today. I think that'll be fun. It's always an escape. You're trying to escape something, and it's usually something pretty bad. I think that uh, there are treatments out there uh, that aren't being used globally because they work. And if they work, there's nothing ongoing. So how do the you know pharmaceutical companies make any money? There's a drug called Ibogaine. It was never patented. And that patent period is well and truly over. It's a psychedelic. Now, I know I don't know much about this, but I've, I, all I know is that I keep reading and hearing about psychedelics more and more in the last sort of five to eight years. Lots of people talking about psychedelics to in terms of like um, for mental health things, for depression. A lot of PTSD sufferers, yeah. like people coming back from wars and even people in my situation that were suffering from PTSD are finding, you know, psychedelics really, really helpful. What they are discovering is that under the right conditions, um, like please just don't go out there and get yourself some mushrooms and have a trip on the lounge room. smash some mushies. Yeah, yeah, take a trip on the lounge room couch and think the old will be well. No, it, it's done in a very specific and, and careful way with with doctors and psychologists and whatnot. Drugs like Ibogaine, obviously they have to be careful on who they use these psychedelics with. People with uh, paranoia, schizophrenia, extreme bipolar, it's not going to be suitable for them because it's going to screw up with their own chemistry too much. But there's a lot of people that aren't in those groups that it could really, really help. And a lot of people say that have gone through the treatment and had the right aftercare never have any wish or notion or urge to use ever again. Now, you didn't use Ibogaine, though, did you? No, no, no. I, I, you have to go overseas. You can't do it in Australia. Right. But you haven't used yourself in how long? Seven years. And how did you do that? I, I, I just came off methadone slowly. I actually was a bit naughty because uh, you go to the chemist like twice a week and you get your takeaway bottles of methadone in between. 
I would like not take one if I could. And I stockpiled. Eventually, I was only having it that twice a week and I, I was having nothing in between. And then I had enough stuff piled that I stopped going to the chemist and just used what I had at home. And I would just have less and less and eventually nothing. The way the doctors want to do it is, okay, when you choose to drop to this amount, that's what you get. So if you're finding you need a little more one day, a little less the next day, you have no control over that. That's why I chose to do it the way I did. Now, probably highly illegal, like to stockpile it like that. I think, too, when you're dropping it down, the withdrawals on methadone are intense. Yeah. And the lower you go, the worse you feel, the worse you feel. So you end up just bumping it back up again because you feel so horrible. I swapped. Now they've got a uh, injection you have once a month. Oh, really? Yeah. But to get on it, I had to get my methadone down to about 20 milligrams. And I broke my hip back in 2019. And when I broke my hip, they put my methadone like right up to some ridiculous amount of 180 or something. Doesn't methadone makes your bones brittle, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I've I've got osteoporosis as well anyway. I've lost all my teeth because of the methadone too. Yep. I eventually got down to 20 and a couple of months back I swapped over to the injection. They said to try and make it longer and longer between you have the injections and then eventually you're off it. It's been four months since I've had the injection now. Wow. I keep waiting to all of a sudden go into withdrawals or something, but I don't seem to be. Do you notice it in your energy levels or things like that? I have noticed in the last week my energy levels are starting to get a bit higher. Yeah, great. And everything's starting to, like, when you go off opiates, everything's really bright. And yeah. sharp and sharply focused. Yeah. It's like you've had lenses that you've been looking through. And you're just noticing it lifting now? That's awesome. Yes. So I'm hoping it's over and I'm finished. So I'm assuming that you now have a, a relationship with both sons, with both kids? Uh, yeah, the boys moved in with us when they were 12 and 7. Uh, my ex had a car accident that l- left him with a quiet brain injury. So they came to live with us. And luckily we had just gotten the house, that we, the first house we got together, and we actually got a, a nice big four-bedroom place, you know, so the kids would have somewhere to be when they'd come visit. And it turned out they moved in within a couple of months. But there was one thing that I wanted to mention. When someone meets you and finds out that you have a history with hard drugs, they immediately start to question your ethics, your morals, whether you're just a basic good or bad person. And unfortunately, the assumptions are always in the negative. Like It's never like, oh, you went through this health crisis it was you were an evil person and that's what needs to change yeah like people don't also realize how many people are on it because when i went secretly back in the it was 99 2000 i went to rehab and detox and stuff a lot and a lot of the people there were people who had nine to five jobs or they were nurses, a lot of nurses. Yeah, I met a lot of like nurses that. in the working world too. Like they'd, they'd start off, you know, like with tablets and it would just build. It's taught me a lot. I never 
make assumptions about people. I never judge their choices. I've realized that there are so many factors that come into play when someone's acting a certain way or making certain choices that, like, there's no way I could understand all the facets that went into what they're doing. Thank you to our guests today, Angie and Luna. If you need support after listening to this podcast, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or contact 1800 RESPECT on 1800 737 732 or 1800respect.org.au. Indigenous Australians can contact 13 Yarn on 13 1396 or 13yarn.org.au. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Listen to this Acast show ad-free on Amazon Music with your Prime membership or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there.